snowing and blowing a bushels of fun. Now the jingle hop has begun. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bells chime in jingle bell time. Dancing and prancing in jingle bell square. In the frosty air, what a bright time. It's the right time to rock the night away. Jingle bell time is a swell time to go gliding in the one horse sleigh. Giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. Hello and welcome to a spin-off of the Odd Job Pod, the Action Movie Landfill. Uh, this is a podcast where we had so much fun recording the section in between License to Kill and Goldeneye with uh, all the action movies that could have been Bond films that we ended up talking a lot about action movies. And then we ended up talking a lot about action movies that were in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s. And then we thought, hang on, rather than have a load of people sitting around talking about action movies in the uh, 80s, 90s and early 2000s, why don't we do what everybody else does on the internet and put it into a podcast? Unfortunately, we already have one called The Odd Job Pod. But we thought we'd do an, an off-branch. So this is now The Odd Job Pod presents Action Movie Landfill. Um, so we're going to take uh, movies from across uh, the 80s, 90s, 2000s that are just pure action that we enjoy, that we love, and we're going to discuss the shit out of them. And that's essentially the premise for this podcast. But partly as well, we thought, hmm, are we too old for the shit? No, not at all. Let's just start watching Lethal Weapon. So I am Gary Andrews. I am the host uh, of this episode of uh, Action Movie Landfill an Odd Job Pod production, uh, and unsurprisingly to regular Odd Job Pod listeners, uh, I am joined by Terry DeFallon and Graham Sibley. Uh, welcome back for the for action movie landfill. I feel I need one of those deeper booming voices um, like Alan Dedicote or something like that to be able to, uh, to properly carry that off. But uh, welcome, gentlemen. Terry, uh, are you looking forward to a bit of action? Uh, yeah, no, I, I am definitely uh, too old for this shit, but it's not going to stop me anyway. Excellent. And, uh, and Graham, you uh, you up for sifting through the landfill? <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. And as far as being too old for this is concerned, I, I, I think, yeah, if... If if a forty one year old uh, Danny Glover can pass can pass off as fifty years old, then I'm sure I can pass off as sixty three. <laughs> yes, I, it, it's actually mildly terrifying to think that uh, I am the same age as Danny Glover was when he uh, when he made Lethal Weapon. So um, yeah, I mean, obviously the, there's a lot of similarities between myself and, and Danny Glover, um, and you know, I'd like to think that I could do those action stunts as well. But uh, yes. 
Danny Glover. Well, let's start with Danny Glover because um, when Lethal Weapon came out, um, now I, I'm obviously uh, I'm a little bit younger than than you two gentlemen, but um, Terry, um, Danny Glover as a as an action movie star, I, he's probably the the iconic role that, he's th- that you're thinking about is really kind of like the Color Purple, which was obviously a very different type of film. And then you, uh, Mel Gibson, obviously well established as as a movie star and sort of fits in the action mold. But um, I would probably say if we're starting with Lethal Weapon, we start with Danny Glover because he is one of the heartbeats of the film. Um, probably a a bit of a, a an unlikely action star um, in some respects, but also one that uh, I'm very glad that they made that casting decision. Yeah, and so was he. I mean, he was quite intrigued by the idea of of, of being in an action movie, uh, and he and he did he did trade off uh, off of it quite well as well, and had uh, it, it was it added an extra dimension to his to his range. And um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, he's is it's a, a world away from his role in The Color Purple, a film that I haven't seen in goodness knows how long, um, and it brings it obviously brings some character and some gravitas to the movie. It's just the premise of this movie is a it's a but it's a old-fashioned buddy movie. I think that they were looking for some kind of western or a bit of Dirty Harry in there as well. The idea of maybe making a kind of up-to-date version of Dirty Harry, but with but with the role of Myrtle being the kind of the, the grounding influence on this sort of um, wild wild character that is Martin Riggs. It also requires a bit of humour as well. Um, in the role and he does it really really well he's he's an actor of considerable substance and you might be forgiven for thinking well you know you're kind of kind of wasted in in an action movie but you know one of the one of the things that makes act make good action movies good is the ability for um the is the actors to convincingly play the role um and and embrace and enjoy it and he certainly he certainly appeared to be enjoying that right from the off um, was 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 charismatic and an instantly likable character. Yeah, obviously characters are, are super important. And Graham, this is you know essentially this is a buddy movie. It's not like before Lethal Weapon came along, we hadn't had buddy movies, and yet this almost became the template for it. Um, why do you think that is? Because it's so well made. <laughs> I think that's it. I mean, it, it's the. The the two lead characters just work so well, and and that is in part down to them because they they they're really good actors, and and they just play off each other very well. But also the director who 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 gives them everything that they that they need to do that, uh, which included large scale changes to the to to the script, which I don't think was ever nailed down. I think I think the whatever script. Of are floating around these days are, are basically ones that were done after the the event, um, but uh, it, this wasn't the first buddy movie that that uh, Richard Donner had done. About twenty years beforehand, when he's um, he did a film called Salt and Pepper uh, with Sammy Davis Jr., uh, which was another black guy white guy buddy movie, but completely different. They, 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 in in that he was they, they were playing. Um, Soho club owners who get embroiled in a government conspiracy. Um, starts off very, very similar though, with uh, a, a beautiful girl dying 
uh, from seemingly a drug overdose, but there's actually been been poisoned. She's a secret agent. But um, anyway, I haven't seen the film. I've just read up all about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I wonder if if uh, uh, Richard Donner's experience in that forgettable British film, uh, Anglo-British film, that uh, he uh, w- w- brought that along with him because you see that in his other films as well you, you see how he's, he gets his lead characters to 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 just you know spark on a screen i think he's superman with the way that uh that christopher reeve and marco margo kidder the, the 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 chemistry they have on the screen which is just incredible um and then you've got these guys in this in this well you say it's an action film but it, it, it is just a, a buddy cop story for the first half and then halfway through, there's just one incident happens, and then all of a sudden, it's big explosions, constant gunfire, and and jeopardy all the way through. It, it, it's no wonder everyone tried to copy this film, and they parodied it as well uh, with the Loaded Weapon franchise as well. So there's so much about this that has gone on throughout what we're the period that we're that we're talking this this action movie landfill the 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 period where people started to own VHS for for once rather than just rent it and take it back you owned it and watched the hell out of the films and people will have worn out their VHSs of this this film because it's so watchable and you go back to it over and over again. Yeah, I mean, you could for me it, it's always felt with a film like Lethal Weapon. You've got occasional films that just lay down markers and, and templates for, for where everything goes. And Lethal Weapon is very much one of those films. It's not like it took uh, things which hadn't been done before. Uh, it's not like it took kind of a different, uh, dif- a different approach to it. It was, as, as, as we said, just a very well-made film. Um, and the, watching it back, one thing, Terry, that really surprised me um again partly because it's been a little bit of time since i I watched lethal weapon but just how much um i guess kind of depth there is to the characters and the humanity in there which isn't necessarily something that we we focus an awful lot in terms of in action films obviously we've talked a lot about uh how how bond uh started getting a lot more emotional um as we moved into into the craig eras uh and obviously dalton as well added a bit to it but in terms of this you do have you know you've got sort of very well-rounded characters um, and, and interestingly for me as well I read that, that this is probably one of the reasons that Mel Gibson signed on because he didn't just want to do another action movie he, he really liked the script and the depth that it, it offered him yeah I mean there's there's shades of of, of um, uh, Mad Max in Martin Riggs um, the, 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 tinged with great tragedy I and mean, obviously I mean if you, if you if it's the first Mad Max movie, I mean, I won't spoil it actually, but it is, you know, the the premise of the Mad Max character, the foundation of his of of Mad Max, it is based in utter tragedy, complete and total tragedy, much like what what um, Martin Riggs has, has had to endure, and and it, it it had echoes of that, obviously, because obviously because of Mel Gibson and and the manner with which he did. Obviously, the the character of Martin Riggs. Very, very different. Much, much more of a of a live wire. Um, much more like a like a like a a, a walking cattle prod, uh, as opposed to as opposed to Mad Max. Who, you know, Max who who was a lot more somber in in tone, um, although no less lacking in in action when 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 called upon. Um, and and yeah, it, it 
because he's an interesting character, Martin Riggs, because he also he carries with him certain contemporary views about things that 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 wouldn't hold up now. But it, it, it does kind of it does kind of work because he is a flawed man, a man who suffered great trauma. And, 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 all, and the only thing keeping him going is the fact that he's a policeman, is that he has a calling and he has a job. And he lives in a he lives in a trailer. You know, he, he can just about look after a dog. You know, I mean, it's all he can do. You know, he has beer for breakfast. You know, he's a he watches bad television. I mean, and 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 all he can actually do is 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 catch bad guys and and well, <laughs> I was going to say catch bad guys, shoot bad guys, um, and 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 that's it basically. Uh, and he's completely misunderstood by absolutely everybody in in the film, and he just plays that utter misfit and then against Myrtle who is establishment police, you know, a good, a good cop, yes, and, and, and very good at his job, but very much, you know, he has the family, he's got a boat, he's thinking about retirement, you know, he's thinking, you know, he's, he is the, he's that kind of stereo, he's, he's that kind of stereotypical black cop or black character who usually ends up getting killed in the third reel, but happily, one of the reasons why this movie busts so, so, so many different stereotypes is that that, of course, doesn't happen in this film. They share equal billing um, and they go all the way through to the end and launch a successful franchise. So, yeah, no wonder Gibson was was attracted to the role of of of, of, of Riggs because it is a it, it is there's a lot to get get used to get get stuck in there and it, and he's a character of substance and depth. Mm. And and as well, Graham, the, you've got that that kind of um, as Terry said, you've got that that substance and depth to it that that sits in a script. Um, and again, when some people think of Lethal Weapon, they may think of the the later um, entries into the franchise, which lends a bit more towards comedy. But this is actually quite um quite a dark movie overall. Um, you know, if you if this was oh, the only Lethal Weapon movie ever made, you would probably go that was actually quite. Um, I mean, it, it's unsurprisingly brutal being the 80s, but um, it's, there's a lot of darkness that's in there and there's a bit of comedy, but the comedy is not played up at all. It, it's very much the characters rather than the uh, rather than the the comedy itself in there. And the, the, there is a lot that you feel. And I read somewhere, I think that Shane Black's original draft was was even darker than than where we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it was incredibly dark, uh, and I think uh, Donna saw that. That's why he brought um, Jeffrey Bowman to 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 lighten it up a bit. Um, the guy who wrote yeah. Inner Space, so to to add that bit of comedy value to to it, um, and, and so yeah, it does change it. There are some elements of that that some people might watch and think, well, that just doesn't work. You you can't just be going from from like knockabout fun to 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 people getting shot and there are some bits in there that are just completely incongruous but i mean there were there's a scene in there that was cut i think it it came back when they did an extended uh, version of it uh in the early 2000s i think they did it um but there was a scene where um, there's a sniper and he's shooting kids um in a, in a playground and um, and riggs takes him out um and I think there's a, the, uh, but uh, so there were scenes like that that were that were taken out, and and rightly because I think it it at the moment you've got a film the way it was, it was a film that that came in about an hour forty five, perfect time. It means you can have two showings in an evening, brilliant. 
so, and it just, the pacing of it works really well. I think if you put too much of the negative stuff in there, then it really does start to drag and it makes the comedy even harder to introduce. So uh, I, th I think the balance... All right, some people may watch it these days and think, oh, uh, that's a bit clunky. But I, I think for its time, and, and I think personally for me, that it works well. Uh, and I think that even though it's dark, I mean, it has to be dark. It starts off with a, with a, with, uh, a young girl committing suicide. Uh, and there's actually a protracted scene where, 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 where Martin attempts to shoot himself. He, he, he actually goes through the process of loading a gun up and sticking it in his mouth. And that's really, really quite hard. You don't. This is not the sort of thing you normally see in any sort of tough guy movie. You don't. You don't see him try to to, to like seriously contemplate killing himself. Um, I'm not sure they'd even do that today now. Not and ha not have this in a in a film which has comedic value. Not have something with such um, suicide triggers. It would have to come with warnings now nowadays. Um, but. And the way Gibson plays that, you're not going to get most action movie actors aren't going to be able to do that as convincingly either. Um, there is a story that that um, that Zeffirelli saw that scene, and that's how he cast him uh, Gibson for Hamlet. He saw that scene and thought, right, I found my Hamlet now. So I mean, that's a, that's the the strength of it. Yeah, it's it's a film that um, takes you to to places which again. I would say kind of when you look at some really, you know, some some entertaining action fare, and this is is an incredibly entertaining film. It, it, as Graham, you said it rattles along at a at a great pace. We don't ever get a bit of time to catch our breath. Everything kind of holds together in there by and large. There's not too much that takes you away from it. Um, certainly, you'd probably say that there will be some other action movies that we may be discussed that don't have that kind of heft in there. But um Terry, we, just to go back as well, because we obviously talk a, a lot about Glover and, uh, and and Gibson and, you know, obviously the focus is is on them because they're on screen. But this is very much Richard Donner's movie as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, and, and also Joel Silver as well, the producer who produced a, a, and it, it sort of sits in the kind of imaginary silver verse beautifully as well. And if anybody I mean, that's that's for me, that's the, the, the franchise that never was is the silver verse is the it's the commando diehard lethal weapon predator. Um, uh, the, the, all together in a single universe that, that, that I never got. But one day, someone will bring all those strands together and will launch, relaunch a franchise. And, and I just hope I live long enough to, to, to see those movies when they come out and TV shows and watch them wipe the floor with Disney+. Plus. But, but, I mean, Donna um, is, is also quintessentially, I would say, that sort of like late 70s, 80s, sort of like golden period of, of, of cinema is one of those directors, like, a bit like Tony Scott, you know, a, you know you're watching a Richard Donner a film. There's a signature to, to, his, to, his, to his films um, and the way that he works with the actors. And again, as Graham points out, chemistry, absolutely essential. But he also he also brings out the minor characters really well. There's 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 Mortog's mate, who is just in the office. You know, while before before he meets Riggs, he's in the office. He's talking about eighties men, and then he just like lands that joke at the end about oh you know I, I, last night I cried in bed. And he says was a was a woman with you? Said, no, that's why I was crying. And it it was it was just 
just that 30 odd seconds of that guy he only comes back later but you we also we, we see him again we recognize him we trust him we understand what's going on when we see him in that little pivotal moment later on when he picks up the phone and he lies to to mr joshua who i hope is a character we'll be talking about shortly um and he i mean he imbues imbues character in people in a very very short space of time uh, and and the, the, you know obviously the cast the 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 supporting cast and, and Murtog's family as well play a big big part in this movie very important part of this movie good well rounded characters proper filmmaker and, and and I think that that's what elevates this movie is is that it is you know it's 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 a it's a movie that is made for grown ups by grown ups albeit with a mental age of a 12 year old but it is it it is still a movie made by grown-ups you know and mature filmmakers who know their who know their craft mm, and, and you know i'd probably say that when you're looking at, at certain films um obviously donna has got his, his action chops with superman which is still uh a, a absolute classic of a movie um but graham could have been very different um leonard nimoy was originally the first choice to direct <laughs> yeah yeah that would have been interesting wouldn't it um fascinating fascinating indeed terry fascinating indeed uh but yes he was making uh three men and a baby wasn't he so unfortunately he couldn't uh yeah he didn't he didn't want to make an action film he said it would be illogical <laughs> <laughs> well in fairness he'd already done one didn't he with uh with search of spock i mean they, 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 there's certainly action elements in there isn't yeah. there yeah yeah, I mean, yeah, he's done an action. Oh, well, well, well I mean, let's but, face I mean, yeah, it the yeah. the the fight yes. scene in there in that is is as tacked on as the fight scene at the end of this film, isn't it? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, that is very true. That fight scene is uh, yeah. Well, I quite like the fight scene in Search for. I must confess, I didn't particular. I thought by the end of the of of Lethal Weapon, I just thought. That was one element of that extra fight scene with Mr. Joshua, which was, I remember being at the time very gratifying watching it because it was good because he was such a bad guy and it was great that, that Riggs was kicking his backside. But it, I did look at that and thought, oh, yeah, no, I don't think they could do that anymore. No, I think that's no, just, no, like, no. just you, moving you, over <laughs> into silliness. This guy's just shot two policemen killed two policemen and now mm. they're just let, letting these guys just have a fight under the spotlight of the, of the helicopter i uh, know it, like it, it was some it, kind of underground boxing match or something well, it, yeah you, uh, um but stay with me on this one right okay <laughs> okay <laughs> have either of you guys ever been to the ballet yes right okay so right okay well gary this one's for you i'll, I'll t- tell you what 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 happens in in, in in ballet right there is generally a story it's pretty basic because you know you have to tell it through dance but basically they all just jump around there's lots of people like dancing it's very very technical and it's all very 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 good if you really enjoy that sort of thing um but you get in the notes you get you get uh, you get told what the story is which is very helpful if you don't know ballet very much so you, you you look through it, and by the time it gets to the to the interval, you realise you're about three quarters of the way through the story. So you think, well, what's going off here then? Right, as is happening, <laughs> and so you come back after you know, like your gin and tonic that you've had, and, uh, and and you sit back down, and then the 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 rest of the of the of the story plays out within like the sort of first sort of like twenty minutes or so of the second half. So you think, oh, oh okay, well. All right, are we going to go home early then? Oh, no, 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 no. What happens now is that all the cast get a chance to do a little dance for you and like, you know, show off what they can do. And like that. and that's basically the next sort of like three quarters of an hour or so. 
and then and then everyone sort of like comes up, takes the, the the applause. There may even be be some encores after that as well. But after that, it's just basically you know that's it. That's it. That's the end of the show. This is what we've got. This is what the ending of Lethal Weapon is. The story's actually all wrapped up. As soon as that hand grenade go, 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 goes off in in the in the general's car, then that's it. That's it. That's boom. That's it. That's the end of the film, end of the story. The whole Mr. Joshua bit at the end is just completely just just them just having a little dance at the end, basically. That's all it is. And it just, just yeah. lets you go in with an extra 20 minutes. Or a well-choreographed, beautifully executed dance. So, yes, just like ballet. Just, just <laughs> yes. Like. The whole setup for that scene is atrocious <laughs> because, you know, it's, they've clearly laid a trap for Mr. Joshua and they've used these two policemen as bait. And who he's just murdered. It's like it's a you know. I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to really. I mean, I don't know why there were sequels because really Riggs, <laughs> Riggs and Marto should have been put in jail. <laughs> yeah, but that's just uh, shocking. But anyway, obviously it's fantasy, not real life, and I yes. understand. Yes, yes, obviously so. <laughs> I like I like that Graham. You basically said that the end uh, of Lethal Weapon is essentially like the extended drum solo from a heavy metal band or from a metal band or hair metal band in the eighties, where they basically give the drummer about ten minutes to uh, to strut their stuff on stage. And uh, yeah, that's essentially what we're looking at there. It's it's an extended drum solo, it's entirely performative. performative yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is exactly that. And g- g- considering how much how much like a wailing guitar and the moody sax saxophone we have we we this film does need a bit of a drum solo in it i think <laughs> did somebody say music <laughs> well what a, what a nice segue there eh? <laughs> well yes terry let's let's talk music in here because um yeah there is there's a lot of sax there's a there's a lot of sax appeal in uh, in this particular film um and the soundtrack is again it's um I, again, it's one of those things that I noticed when I was watching it, because obviously, you know, when you, you first watch it, you focus on all the actions coming towards you. But the music is is kind of, it's 80s, but it's also got a, a fair bit of that kind of melancholy, downbeat vibe to it, which even though the film paces along quite well, it's a really interesting how it carries the film through certain bits. And it's, you know, again, one of the things with the soundtrack for me is that, you know, how much does it complement what goes on in there as opposed to stand out? And and it does, even though if you probably listen to the soundtrack by itself, you wouldn't necessarily go, ah, that's an action movie soundtrack. Yeah, I actually own the soundtrack to Lethal Weapon, um, and it's and, and yeah, it, it stands up as a piece of music, as a as a suite of, of, of music. It's 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 really listenable, and it works very well uh, to and it almost it complements the action, but it also sem- it it, it, um, it it sets the tone of the movie that that the movie is and should be for the most part somber, but with some light moments and light beats to it. As Graham says, some of them jar perhaps these days, but but that's what the the the, the music does. Michael Kamen is the composer. If you were listening to our podcast a couple of podcasts ago, Odd Job Pod, we were talking about um, License to Kill, and I believe it's possible I may have mentioned that uh, that, this, that that Michael Kamen, who did the soundtrack to License to Kill, there's a lot I think borrowed from Lethal Weapon in the License to Kill soundtrack. I think. Uh, um, if you uh, take a, uh, take notice of these things, uh, the Eric Clapton uh, element to it. Eric Clapton did the guitar solos and is credited as a soundtrack uh, composer, which I think is a little bit, you know, 
yeah, maybe overstretching things. But he does the guitar solos. Simply, you have a question? Uh, yeah, but they, they they both worked on Edge of Darkness together, didn't they? That's Two what years I was earlier. To. Yeah, yeah, right. Because yes, because the editor Stuart Baird, a very very good editor, to be fair, um, he when he was doing the tracking, he was using the Ed, the Edge of Darkness score when he was editing it and putting it all together. And they, they liked it. So they said, well, we'll just get the same guys in to do that. And so that's that's how that happened. Um, but yeah, but it, again, so it, it's interesting because looked at that movie while he's editing it and gone, I will use we'll use this music for this because I think this is this is the vibe that, that he was getting off the film. So it's really quite interesting how that's that's developed. It's a central component of the movie, um, the music, Lethal Weapon, in my opinion. And I know we kind of like wail on the sax, if you'll pardon the pun, and, and on the and on the guitar. But they're absolutely they're they're, they're one of the signature pieces of the of, of Lethal Weapon. You, you, it's not it's not the same movie without those without that. Mm. No, you you hear a fair bit, and it goes in. And if you just have to hear a few bars of it, and if you watch Lethal Weapon several times, which I'm assuming that everybody listening to this and also uh, you two gentlemen have done, then you immediately you could you could turn on ITV4, and it could start wafting through there, and you'd know exactly what was on TV at that point in time. It's a very it's a mnemonic. It's a very good uh, motif that that goes through. Um, so yeah, we we have that as one element to it and Graham one of the things that obviously we uh, we talk about a lot on the odd job pod is villainry and uh, this this is an interesting movie because actually the uh, the main villain is one who or the the main kingpin is one who doesn't get anywhere near as much screen time as uh, as the hench in this which is uh, Mr Gary Busey's Mr Joshua um and again one of those very um, I guess, kind of key components in here that this wouldn't be lethal weapon probably wouldn't have been quite so, um, I guess, successful and enjoyable. It still would have been successful and enjoyable. But but Gary Busey is a key part of this film as much as uh, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Certainly, certainly. And and of course, looking back at it, you, you may think, oh, look, it's it's an it's an 80s action film because Gary Busey's in it. But really, this this kicks like actually uh, restarted his career. He started getting loads and loads of work because of the, the role in this film, and and he does it so well. He's just an, an utter psychopath, which is what you want in in your in your henchman. Um, yeah, the the general gets hardly any time. But then again, that's I think that's also a, a theme with eighties. Uh, action films uh it's like it's like uh, as terry mentioned commando earlier it's like look, really you're more interested in the henchman because he's the one who's going to go head to head fist to fist with 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 uh, the the main protagonist uh, rather than than the general who's just going to get shot because he's some fat bloke um so um so yeah so yeah you can see why the general is a, a is is not really played that much because he's such a one-dimensional character anyway well most most villains are um but as well because the um the the premise of them is so basic they're, they're just drug smugglers there doesn't need to be much depth, which you sort of think, well, because Donna has this whole thing about world building. You 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 know so much about the characters in there, even if it's not said, it's implied, and and you get that feeling from them. Uh, but he, he doesn't really bother with the with the with the villains at all. 
it goes as far as explaining the motives behind be, be, behind them, but it's it, it it's really seen that's seen more as an extension to um, the whole Vietnam sub subbeats that, mm. that that are going throughout the the, the, the film. Another another mid eighties trope. Um, you you couldn't really have a film that didn't reference Vietnam in some way, shape, or form. So uh, yeah, but Gary Boosie, brilliant comes on completely steals steals the scenes that that, that he's in brilliantly um even the uh, the um the torture scene as well that where where he's he's in the room just to just just to liven it up a bit more between the between the characters there so he's the one who's in charge of the of the of the of the torturer not the general he's obviously mm. the general is is just far too good at delegating that's why we don't we don't we don't see him Mr. Joshua is there to uh, explain, uh, basically to to explain that why Riggs doesn't escape from his torture earlier, because yeah. he can only take he can only, he can take he can't because he knows he can't take Joshua in that situation. You know he has to he has to wait for him to leave before he can finally escape. Otherwise, he'd have broken out there straight away. Sure. That's why Joshua is there. Sure, but contrasting compared to um, Die Hard. Where you've got the where you've got got the the mastermind is given the the the, the bigger role than the henchmen, yes. and you can see why they are completely different films. And while why, yeah. and and Die Hard needs that because obviously uh, Bruce Willis's character doesn't have someone he can bounce off, mm, and there's plot as well. Yeah, there's 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 the, the caper in you know, and it needs to be. The caper needs to be expanded upon, and so you need a strong villain to be able to, to be able to do that convincingly to the audience. Yeah. Whereas, as you say, you know these are just a bunch of drug smugglers. You know, so there's not much to talk about really. You know, it's just it's it's all the personal stuff. It's the, the yeah the, 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 what that what count. And so you don't need the villain. You don't need the big guy. You know, you only, you only need the big guy there just simply to give structure to the to the organization. Uh, really, the, the 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 villain is Gary is 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 Mr. Joshua. That's that's the pre, he's the primary villain in this movie, and he, uh, he's, he's he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. And he's just you know uh, the the lighter sequence, maybe a bit cheesy, maybe a little, maybe these these are a bit cheesy, a bit obvious. I don't know, but the reason why it would be cheesy and obvious is because of of that scene. Is because of Lethal Weapon because it it established you know the the bound modern boundaries for contemporary villainry and took things a lot further bringing the idea of mentally ill people being being villains again these are things that we would revisit now in a modern age you know and, and wonder whether or not this is truly you know <laughs> serving serving the audience by having these kinds of these kind of villains but 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 yes the idea of the of, of this psychopathic special forces Merck, Merck who is you know you know you know just the the flip side of Riggs 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 decided to be a good guy and um, Mr. Joshua decided to be a bad guy. Um, but apart from that, there may not be actually that much. Presumably you stack them up in terms of their values. Riggs makes a couple of homophobic remarks during the movie and he also makes a racist remark during the movie. Um, uh, we, uh, as us, appear to be would be forgiving him for this. We are aware of the time with which it was, with which it was made. It's got that heavy Vietnam feel and there's a racist remark against against endo isn't it the uh the yeah. the, the torturer um and then there's a couple yeah and there's a re- reference to a faggot as well um but uh, but you know we, we i think we're okay to contextualize these and understand that riggs is a is a 
troubled uh, troubled character. And we understand that more because of the way that he interacts with Mr. Joshua and we can see them both. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, it makes, although that final fight sequence doesn't make sense in terms of plot, it does make perfect sense in terms of the, the battle between these two men. Um, and it's, it is, and it is, it is performative. It's theater. It's, it's ballet. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's got, it, don't worry about plot. This movie's <laughs> not about plot. It's about characters. It's about characters. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and what the characters do, you know, how they get there and the route that they take all utterly immaterial, completely secondary to what you're, you're supposed to be having a visceral experience what i i find kind of quite interesting as well about the the end sequence but also the the kind of riggs and joshua balance is that um you have something in here which is very much about the idea of as as you said terry the idea of equals because we've often again to hark back to some of our other podcasts when we talk about has james bond met, met his match and there's certain um certain villains or certain certain sort of henchmen who are designed to be kind of a mirror image of of bond um, and in this one, you literally do have Joshua is that mirror image of of kind of Riggs in there. It, those two are pretty much as equal as you can get. They have both the same training. They have both the same backgrounds that that, that sits within there. Um, and they will, you know, as we see in the fight at the end, it's very hard for, for one or the other to get the upper hand throughout the uh, the entire fight scene. And there is that that kind of sense in there. And I remember I was reading a, a, a bit of kind of, uh, you know, reading up a little bit about this. And one of the things that Mel Gibson said that he liked about Riggs was that he wasn't just that kind of action hero who swoops in and just knocks out everything and then goes off again. You know, he's not, he's most certainly not that, that type of person he's somebody who actually you know there are equals of him out there he's not this kind of absolute superhero again probably there is a if, if you picked up something there would probably be a reference to bond or certainly you know moore's bond probably more than anything else where you know, it comes in and everything's fine and and saves the world um that's definitely not the case with with Riggs at all. And Joshua, to me, is a key part of that balance as well, because he goes back and back and forth. And again, you are not entirely sure who will have the uh, the upper hand or not. And also um, as well. And Graham, I wonder on this as well. You've you've got a film that if, obviously we know now that it spawned loads of sequels. But I wonder if the audience um, watching this would have gone, is Riggs actually going to make this through the movie alive? Or is is Murtaugh going to make it through the movie of life? Because all the way through, you're you're pretty, you know, there's a lot of action in there. But given the tone of the film, it wouldn't have been a huge surprise if one or the other of the characters had had ended up uh, six feet under. Not at all. Uh, it it wouldn't have been a surprise. It, it and and as as Terry alluded to earlier, it, it's the sort of thing you expect in the third reel uh, for the. Uh, it's no good. I'm not going to make it, you know, one week <laughs> yeah, before my crazy. retirement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mendoza! Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, so so you do expect, and, and I suppose if they hadn't show, uh, shared equal billing, then that probably would have happened. Um, there are plenty of spin-offs of this where it probably doesn't happen. Um, uh, yeah, it, 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 but, but, 
that's that's another triumph of the storytelling. There is genuine jeopardy in there. You do think mm-hmm. when everything's gone wrong with about 20 minutes to go and you, you see that uh, um, Mortos going out to the desert on his own to being sur- and surrounded by guys. I love that sequence, by the way. I mm-hmm. think as soon as they as soon as they drive into the into the desert and there's that lovely aerial shot of of uh, of Riggs running through the desert with with the gun and they've got that uh, lens flare coming across it as well, right, right over him as well. Brilliant, brilliant scene. And the whole thing when he set his sights up and said, "Move to the left, move to the left, move to the left." I, I love that, and and yeah, it's it's a it's a classic sort of like oh yeah, shoot up all the bad guys, yeah, because they've got loads and loads and loads of goons that just keep on like just lining up to replace these other goons that are dead on the floor. But who cares? Yeah, you, know, you just get swept up in it, and that's the strength of it. The, the 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 action in this film never ever seems to me anyway never seems um, ridiculous. It's far fetched, mm. but it's not ridiculous. I don't go. Oh, just <laughs> what on earth is happening here? And yeah, you, some mm. on some some of the scenes you can see the the, the rough edges, but um, the way that it's played by 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 by, by the actors is it just it keeps it grounded. Uh, and and as I said, there is that twist halfway through the film. Where it, it, you're, it, it's an investigation. It's, it's there is that that scene when they're in the shooting uh, gallery, isn't it? When they're when they're in the in the range, and uh, you get a lovely little bit of comedy with the with the have a nice day smiley face on the uh, and and even that the comic timing on that is brilliant with the with the way that the, the, that he pushes the, the the target back that goes on for. Yeah, <laughs> it was seemingly yeah. ever. It's probably only about ten seconds, but it yeah, seemingly goes on yeah. forever. And the way that 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 Donna has directed that, because the target is now blurred, it's completely out of focus. You can barely see what it actually is. You know what it is, but because you've seen it go all the way back there, but it's so far away, it's all blurred and horrible. And 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 yeah, and then what they're doing at the same time is they is they're unraveling the case. And then you've got that lovely little comedy scene with the with the kids. So are you going to go and bust Dixie? And which which is great because they're all cute, like six year old kids, like, like <laughs> taking the piss out out, out out the cops. And then the house blows up, and really everything that follows that is just mayhem and and craziness compared to what happens in the first half. That that scene that that with Alfred and his and his friends um, and uh, it, the kids that is. And and because uh, then Alfred's sort of like, oh you're a cop, but oh don't you just arrest black men? And and it, and it, and then everyone's sort of like you know everyone's all sort of, the police are sort of like chuckling to themselves, and isn't that funny? And of course this movie's set in Los Angeles, and it's set what five years before the Rots riots. Yeah. Um. So there's you know there's and and it's 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 kind of it is kind of peculiar in that you know you've got a prominent you've got you got one you've got a you know, a prominent lead actor who is black and doesn't die. Um, and is a cop, um, and and, it, and it's it's not foreshadowing what's to come at all, but it is giving us a sort of like a sort of cultural snapshot, you know, uh, of, of of in fact to a degree of some genuine horror that was that was to follow in that city in the years in the years that follow. Uh, it just gives us that, and it, it it that didn't occur to me obviously when I first watched it because I first watched it in 1987 but it's only occurred to me on subsequent rewatch rewatch for this for this podcast that I that it maybe I thought oh this is just before all the 
this is a few years before that Rodney King awfulness and and the riots and stuff and like and I and I think that that's worthy of some kind of comment although I don't really know what we make mm. of it or if there's any meaning in it but it, it it seems it seems to add over time it adds some additional depth and context to to to, to that film. Mm. I mean, Graham, especially when you know it, it's worth a bit of discussion. Obviously, uh, caveated with three white men on the podcast discussing this, <laughs> but um, you do have you know. Everything that is set up around Murtaugh, and I, I know that the um, the script wasn't written with any ethnicity in mind at all. But Murtaugh is the is the conscience; he's the beating heart of the film. Um, and it's again, when you look at kind of the era as well, to have a that character and be essentially somebody like Danny Glover, who is is headline billing in an action movie where there isn't he isn't you know obviously that every character has their their flaws, but the way uh, that Murtaugh is written and portrayed. Actually, when you look back at it now and know where we've come as a society, and as you say, Terry said, you look at kind of where the setting is and and the time it came out. Actually, there's something around Lethal Weapon that um, you can understand why why Glover says that he views it as a really important film um, with regard to um, to race within uh, America. Yeah, and and of course he would know because he's he's extremely politically active, um, and 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 has been for years, uh, and uh, he he knows that that area really well. He grew up in in Southern California, that's where he learnt to become an actor, and so yeah, he know he knows it all too all too keenly. I was thinking when I was I was rewatching that film now, all those those kids in that scene are now in their forties. <laughs> and uh, but that shows the amount of time that's gone on, and the sort of jokes that they're making. Don't you just arrest black people? Isn't that it? you know these are the sort of things that we're still saying today? And, yeah, you know that the it's important because yeah, you know the the same problems are still present there. It's not like saying oh yeah, well these are different times. In many ways, it's not different, not different no. times at all. No, there's aspects of this movie that the of, of, of the movie that do date it but only in the in the sense that it dates it in terms of filmmaking yeah in the, the technical aspects and maybe decisions made about how you would you would you would never have a you would you, you would never have a leading character a heroic character who would say anything homophobic or racist you just would not do that no matter how much you tried to contextualize that you just would not you would not do that you wouldn't have you wouldn't have suicide portrayed no. in such a way as you would now, as you say. You're quite right, to, to Graham. Um, but but these are things that you look at and say this is something of the time. That that scene with the kids mm. could have been any movie or TV show that you've seen in the last forty years. Yeah, you know, and, and 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 shot for shot almost. It would, it didn't date whatsoever. I was going to say as well. One of the things that that I picked up on, which I don't think I I have ever picked up on um and again when you talk about things which you think might be quite unlikely is uh when joshua is walking through um murtoch's house on the fridge you have a, a free south africa uh yeah. sticker on there and so there is it, it i wouldn't have ever put um lethal weapon weapon down as a political film but there is elements in here that again those those little touches i cannot imagine even today that where there is some form of political, you know, cause that they would have the lead character basically fairly openly 
in, in that sense. And again, nowhere kind of uh, the, the the time it, it was in, in 1987, that to me suddenly leapt out and went, oh, that, that's very, very bold of the filmmakers, very bold of Richard Donner. Obviously, we have, you know, the, there's a South African <laughs> that comes in into later into the franchise. But again, just looking at, at this particular film, in itself it's uh it's, it's something that's genuinely quite unusual um that i wouldn't have expected to see diplomatic immunity <laughs> i wondered if joss ackland would, would appear <laughs> but yes. yeah so yeah it is obviously a precursor to lethal weapon 2 in which is all about which is all yes. about that i mean i think it's probably fair to say that that yeah i mean it's 1987 is not like 2022 and 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 where where almost anything awful can is there's some toe rag around who's been given a platform to try and justify awfulness um but in 1987 you know you know there were very few people who were willing to put their head above the parapet and defend apartheid south africa um and and so i don't think it was a terribly controversial thing to to, to put on there and and, and and consistent and so i don't know whether or not it was necessarily that bold um, a, a statement, but it, it 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 was something that they didn't have to do, and they chose to, and that has meaning as well. Mm. Um, so let's get it back. If we go back into the the film itself, um, Graham, there's we've mentioned this kind of briefly in throughout the earlier part of this podcast as well. But you've got um, you've you've got that kind of real influence, I would say, from I'd probably say from Eastwood. Um, and when you're looking at Dirty Harry, but then also there's a very much a, I, I feel with the kind of um, the action sequences, it feels very Western. You know, you, you look all the way back to the classic Westerns and then Dirty Harry. And you can see that, that the filmmakers, you know, Shane Black from his script and Richard Donner from the direction. Those those influences really, really stand out within this film well yeah certainly dirty harry um especially when when riggs goes through a plate glass window um there is nothing more 80s action movie than than being shot back through it through through a plate glass window uh i think in deadpool i think it happened over something ridiculous like a dozen times i think <laughs> um but uh yeah um uh, a side note of that is that uh, obviously um Clint Eastwood, we know him now as much as as being a very quality filmmaker, as much as an action hero. Um, uh, but there, there's one thing I always knew about. I, I was told about his um, his performances and why why directors used to love him in these roles is that the fact he never blinked when he fired a gun, which is which is one thing that does bring the 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 shooting gallery um, uh, scene down because because Mel Gibson does very very pointedly just close his eyes every time the gun fires <laughs> and it's slightly spoiling. I wonder if these days that would be fixed with CGI. I bet it would mm. be. I bet it would. Uh, but yeah, there is there's plenty of old fashioned western about this film, um, uh, and and a lot of Dirty Harry, a lot of the of the action film action movie genre from the uh from even like the early 80s is pretty much informed by dirty harry that and that whole dirty harry franchise and the whole fact that it doesn't make sense like at the end of the first film when he throws his badge into the lake and 
as if to say, right, I'm walking away from this. Oh no, you're not. You're coming back for a sequel. Oh yes, I am. So I am. And <laughs> and also also as well, uh, a sudden impact had that had that sort of buddy movie thing going on, didn't he? With because yeah, he was giving a partner, wasn't he? Um, and and of course it was it was it was it was played for laughs a bit, wasn't it? In in certain respects, until she got shot, obviously. Um, is that sudden impact or is that the enforcer? Are you talking about Ty and Daly? Yeah. That's the enforcer. That's the enforcer, isn't it? Not sudden impact, yeah, doesn't she it? Gets, yeah, she gets, and she does, she gets shot in Alcatraz. Sorry for the spoiler. No, <laughs> no. It's an ancient movie, but yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> ne- nearly 50 years ago. I think we can get away with that one now. Yeah, sudden impact. Yeah, anyway. Well, anyway, sorry, let's not get into talk Dirty Harry, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really should revisit those films. It's been a long, long time since I've seen the those. The Dirty Harry films? Yes. Yeah. They're, those yeah, are films I, that, will have, that will have dated badly, aren't they? Yeah, I reckon they're probably <laughs> genuinely awful. But I, I mean, I mean, unfortunately, you don't have to worry about Deadpool because that was genuinely awful anyway. That was but genuinely the, awful, the, yes. Sudden Impact, I remember thinking that was... I remember very much enjoying that film. That, that was mid-80s, wasn't it, that one, wasn't it? Yeah. The, that, was, yeah. that was the fourth one, was it, in the, uh, in the front? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, then it was The Enforcer, um, uh, which was Tyne Daly yeah. uh, and Alcatraz, and then Magnum Force, which was the gay bikers who killed people, which... <laughs> and the black partner who's killed. And, yes, of course, Dirty Harry, which, of course, is... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, so there you yeah. go. So that's, that's <laughs> half the reason. Uh, so, yeah, so to go back to your point, Gary, this film is... is it's is almost like another sequel to that, only with characters who weren't actually in that film, because it 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 revisits those tropes which you've mentioned before: the the black partner getting shot, or the, a or a minority um, partner getting shot, uh, and facing up with issues, and and also uh, things about masculinity and and other things like that. Um, Obviously, 70s ideals in that in that one well not really they were 1950s or 1880s ideals mm. i think of manhoods <laughs> weren't they really um yeah yeah and, and also like just but but coming in on on his uh on his success in spaghetti westerns as well but yeah definitely i mean clint eastwood clint eastwood as well, as well he's making films in, in, at the, this period but he's making really good films and actually starring in a load of action films just to pay the bills as well isn't yeah. it yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well known for it. Yeah, I, yeah. Think he, I mean, he would do did like the rookie, so that he could pay for. Oh, I can't remember already, but but yeah, he did did. A, Unforgiven, and, and wasn't it? The date that the last. Sorry, Unforgiven, wasn't it? He, he did it the rookie four, wasn't it? I think yeah. something like that. Yeah, I mean, like this is coming I mean, because what Clint Eastwood made Pale Rider a couple of years before this movie, hadn't he? And like that yeah. was the movie that everyone went, oh wow, okay, yeah, yeah. this is different. Um, yeah, but yeah, you can anyway. make westerns again now. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, I think, with, um, yeah, there's a lot with um, when you look back and you realise, I think, again, for me, like how almost how seminal Dirty Harry probably was in cinematic terms. And I talked about Lethal Weapon kind of being a marker. Dirty Harry was almost certainly a marker um, within there. And I can also like trace a long way back the the kind of the idea of Reeks doesn't feel a million miles away from the uh, the frontier lawman who takes things into into their own hands um, in which was a, a common feature of, of Western films um, and there's also probably almost a touch of John Wayne in there as well um, certain you know there's there's certain bits of iconography Riggs wearing cowboy boots and also the the bit at the end is where Riggs opts not to kill Mr. Joshua um, but uh, but that turns him over. Um, there's an element of, 
again, might be reading too much into it, but it actually reminded me of The Searchers, which is a classic John Wayne film oh. where by, by the end of it, you, oh. you're not sure whether he's going to kill or, or rescue um, the, the girl oh. at the end of it. And it's such a such a fantastic film. But you can see elements. I, again, I picked up elements of The Searchers in there and I can see Terry almost. I adore that film. I adore that film. It's such a good film. It's It's the movie... Famously, it's the movie that John Wayne, John Wayne got this got his Oscar for True Grit because he should have got it for The Searchers, and the Academy felt guilty about that, and so they gave him for True Grit. It's a bit like um, Paul Newman and The Color of Money. It's like well, I can't believe we haven't given Paul Newman an Oscar. Quickly, give him one now before he dies. Um, and 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 it's it it, it it's The Searchers is just an immaculate film. As it's John Ford, isn't it? You could remake the Lethal Weapon franchise. Uh, and have them all have them all as uh, set in the in the nineteenth century in the old west, uh, and the movie would work. They'd have to make a few adjustments, maybe a civil war uh, being instead of Vietnam. But uh, you could you could totally make that that work. Um, and and for all I know, a mo- such a movie already exists. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we've we just, just forgotten, forgotten about. about. It's got, it's got lost, lost in the annual, annual time. time. <laughs> it, it's, it's turned itself into landfill. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Terry, just to kind of almost, um, just as a kind of little bit of a segue in that as well, in terms of some movies getting lost and, and others not. Um, VHS played probably, I would say, arguably a lot of success into a lot, a lot of it forms the future franchises and the success. And also to me, I guess probably why lethal weapon is loved so much because, um, you know, people such as yourselves in the late eighties who wanted to watch the shit out of action movies again and again could now do so at this point. Well, that's what this podcast is here to celebrate is to celebrate such films. Um, and lethal weapon is a classic example. It must've sold, by the absolute truckload up and down the country. Um, uh, if you're of a certain age and from the UK, or I'm sure that the experience is replicated through many countries, you will used to your record shop suddenly being converted into video stores and selling these videos, these movies, Hollywood movies for a tenner, which was not a lot of money in the 1980s. It's, you know, I mean, I mean, it's even less money now, but it was hugely affordable. Massively affordable. You could afford to buy a movie a week or a movie a month on your on, on your salary, I would say. Um, and the idea of uh, hitherto these films being not unreachable because we could rent them, but you're having to rent them. And if you wanted to get your own copy, you'd have to pirate them realistically if you wanted to. To then being able to legitimately go out there and buy a proper first generation copy, good quality copy, you know, in your hand, take it home. And Lethal Weapon was one of probably one of the top selling movies, I would say, uh, because it, it's such a damn fine film, and 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 it's you know it's got, it, it's got such a broad potential, broad audience as well, and 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 it, and it, and it's, it perfectly exemplifies the kind of movies that we'll be talking about in this strand of podcast. And Graham, they probably looked at, at that and um, not just looked at the box office receipts, but also looked at the uh, the lifespan of Lethal Weapon afterwards and was probably they, they knew even by the time they were getting to four. It's like we can we can get a lot of VHS sales out of this one still. Well, certainly, certainly. Uh, it, it, you, you do feel that that we, we've spoken a lot on um, on the odd job pod about 
the longevity of the James Bond franchise and about why it, it ne it's never really worked with anything else. Um, with Lethal Weapon... And as Terry Terry alluded to early, earlier, it being part of a of a of a of our head canon, a wider a wider cinematic universe, um, but this is what the V what VHS allows it to do. This is why this is why the Marvel universe has been allowed to do what it what it what it's done now is because it it, it knows that that people have ready access to all the other films. If you haven't seen a film before, you can you can go and you can go and download it. You can you can watch it. You can watch it on the, on your phone on the way to, to to the cinema if you can be bothered to go to the cinema to watch it. <laughs> um, but all of these things are were 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 just breaking ground in the eighties. We were used to, to to renting videos, but even then, we'd we'd rent a video, we'd watch it, and and we'd probably never never watch it again. But the this time. Um, it, it wasn't um this wasn't well this was still the early part of of sell through so um they still had a period where you would still um it would still be at rental and if you wanted to buy it you'd have to pay what the what the 50 50 quid 50 quid yeah 50 quid Something for like 50 at least quid. that yeah, 50 you'd have to quid. wait for it so yeah. you'd have its window yeah. It's rental window, and then you'd have to wait for it, and then it would go on sale through. But I think the sequel, Lethal Weapon Two, was one of the first films. I think Warner Home Video, uh, especially well in the UK, I can only speak of. Um, but uh, that came out the same the same week as Rain Man, and they were and they came out on video at rental and sell through at the same time. They're both available for for a tenner. That was just a complete game changer. I, I remember remember going to to yeah, that's entertainment um, and, and in Croydon and just being presented by all these great films that I'd grown up with and think, being able to buy them, being able to being able to own Star Wars. That was that was mm. just an incredible thing. Or uh, or, or yeah, or own a, a decent copy of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I yeah. mean, like, well, I mean, like, I think we had copies, but we would we yeah, would rent yeah. them and then just like rip them basically you know, yeah with like, with yeah. with the itv ad breaks in the middle of them or or indeed yeah tape them off the telly which yeah. of course yeah yeah which which of course you know if you tried doing that with lethal with lethal weapon you had the itv eyes version of it which, which was just basically unwatchable <laughs> <laughs> the cuts that they were used to make itv in speaking in general but again yeah. lethal weapon but in general the cuts itv used to make sometimes for obviously for taste and decency but most time just basically to feed it into their schedules they would make cuts was just so infuriating but it's funny cuz like it, just just on that I, I, I on watching stuff on a moonraker I, i've seen so many times as you know and I, I, I there are still beats points in moonraker where i'm expecting an advert break because i remember seeing <laughs> the itv the, the thing i take from itv even when i went to the pictures to see it i thought there's an ad break here and it was it's just like it's because obviously you're young and massively impressionable and this stuff burns into your mind when you're a teenager in a way that it just doesn't as you get older yeah uh, and it's just a, such a it's so it's just so weird it's a strange social phenomenon that obviously is is extinct now because yeah. we have streaming and, it, and streaming is relatively affordable for most people yeah. so so those things just don't happen anymore. But you see, as to re re returning to your point, Gary, you see that 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 this is the sort of period where it's starting to make that. And films like Lethal Weapon, 
help that a lot, especially under the direction of Richard Donner. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of modern day um, directors that take a hell of a lot from the way he made his films because they're great. You look at The Omen, you look at Superman, you look at you could leave the weapon franchise. You know, he didn't really do a lot really after after Leith Weapon. That's all he had to do because they would regularly drive up to his house with a huge <laughs> truck full of, of bearer bonds. <laughs> they weren't even cash, it was bearer bonds because it was the eighties and <laughs> <laughs> He was uh, due to direct and never said ever again, wasn't he? According to his Wikipedia page, anyway. Which is interesting. That yeah, never happened, but you know. Yeah, I think he turned that I down, would. didn't he? I think. He turned it down. Yeah. yeah. I would yeah. love to have seen a Richard Donner directed James Bond film. Oh, I really yeah. would have done. The, the man knows how to. Ha- he's just. Everything about there is impeccable. It, it's. You know, when you've got a filmmaker who is, is at the top of their game and, and their craft. And just, ag- again, like obviously a lot of James Bond wasn't necessarily about the, the director, but it, it did have a, a place in there. But where, with with richard donner as well you you can just see that just sheer confidence that comes through because he knows his art he knows what he wants um and you've got that in other directors as well i'd probably say that like terminator 2 is is a very good example of that yeah yeah yeah, he's he's absolutely top of his game yeah i i would say i would say richard donner with a with a chris wood uh screenplay oh come on come on Let's see oh. it. Let's get oh. a time machine and go back and, and, and <laughs> make make that film happen. I would be remiss not to mention The Goonies as well, because my wife's favourite film. Yeah. So, uh, but, oh, well, uh, yeah. of course. I mean, which is which? You know, without which, um, uh, yeah, you wouldn't have Stranger Things. So, no. Yeah. How uh, true. Yeah. Very, very few things would not. Very, very. A lot of things. A lot of good things would not have happened without The Goonies having been made. Yeah. And, I didn't uh, even say a lot of good things impact. would not have happened without Richard Donner um, yes, in there. Indeed. Just that, that sheer, yeah, you take the Goonies, Lethal Weapon and Superman. And if he'd only made those, and the and he only made those three, th- those films, you'd have just been like, wow. What a contribution that you've made. Yeah. Superheroes, fantasy, action and horror. And only, only four of the, only four movies, like those four. And what a legacy. My yeah. God. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think I mean I think we've we've uh, we have discussed the shit out of Lethal Weapons. <laughs> we promised to do at the start of this podcast. Um, Graham, any final thoughts from you in in terms of just you know what you you loved or otherwise about about Lethal Weapon and why just why it was so successful? Uh, I think looking back on it. The, this most recent rewatch, which I, I have to admit is the first time I've watched it in quite a few years, um, because I don't actually see it on that often, and I'm sure it is played to death on on ITV4, but I can't recollect the last time I was flicking through channels and it was on. Um, but I was I was quite glad at how well it stood up to the test of time, knowing what films from the 80s can be like. And yeah, there are a few problematic points and, and, and we've mentioned those. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate in showing this film to someone this day. And, and obviously with what I know about the film in mind. But I, I think that, that this, this is something you can still show today. And, and you know, at Christmas, why not bring it out? Because, you know, it's a great Christmas movie. 
couple, yeah, we're going to soon hear everyone going on, oh, Die Hard, Die Hard's the best Christmas movie. This one is more of a Christmas movie than, than Die Hard. It is, it is, everything about it is Die Hard. It starts off with Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock. It finishes with Elvis singing I'll Be Home for Christmas. It's, it, it's also, there's a Christmas tree in pretty much every scene. It, this is this is a Christmas movie, and it's got more of a Christmas message than Die Hard does. So yeah, if you want if you want to have your your blistering takes this this season on, on on social media, whenever anyone says, "Oh yeah, Die Hard is the best uh, um, uh, Christmas movie," just say, "Look, it's a pale, pale, pale Christmas movie next to Lethal Weapon." Yes, Lethal Weapon is most certainly a Christmas movie. There's actually reading an interview with Shane Black who said that he, because he, this is not the only Christmas movie that he's made. He's, it's a recurring motif within Shane Black's scripts and films that he uh, he likes Christmas because it gives him a chance to do a bit more with the characters um, because it is that time of year and, and you can have a little bit more heft in. So I, I, I hereby... Uh, Proposed that Shane Black should be uh, really named the King of Christmas, uh, and uh, and I will hear nothing further from that. Um, Terry, your final thoughts on on Lethal Weapon and just why it became such a successful film and franchise? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, just to talk about why we don't necessarily see it on television as much as we used to. I suspect I suspect the problematic parts of it are just cause a few headaches for schedulers. Not 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 so much the racism and and the stuff because I mean that's just one little bit. It's contextualised in the Vietnam War, um, and the homophobia is, I'd say probably quite soft. But you'd have to ask a homosexual if that's actually true. But I think the suicide sequence is is very very difficult to watch, um, and 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 the more we understand suicide and the nature of suicide. Ofcom have got some pretty strict rules about the portrayal of suicide on television. And it might well be that that's one of the reasons why the movie doesn't appear on, on maybe with the web two and three, I think are much more accessible entries into the franchise. I think that lethal weapon is a bit rough around the edges. Um, but, but in, in, in that respect, in terms of, in, in, in terms of some of the values that, that the movie expresses and that those are polished off somewhat, I think, and kind of etched out, you know, for subsequent movies. But it, as a as a as an example of the genre, it is peerless. Um, as a Christmas movie, as a Christmas action movie, I think yes, there's that and there's Die Hard, uh, and I probably would watch Lethal Weapon over over Die Hard myself. I watched Lethal Weapon a couple of years ago for the first time in years at Christmas on Christmas Eve. Um, I'd made a habit of thinking I'm going to try and watch an action movie on Christmas Eve, and it's not going to be Die Hard because. I was getting quite angry with people going on about Die Hard at Christmas on social media. I don't know why, I just did. Um, and I thought they And then the following year, I watched Executive Decision, which was an absolute pile of shit. Never watched. <laughs> Extremely bad decision. Extremely bad decision. Um, so this year, I shall just go back to watching Lethal Weapon, I think. Um, and that's really all I can say. It's a lot better than Executive Decision. But, well, there is, there is my... There's the example. Executive Decision... How many things are going on about in that movie? Like it's got Kurt Russell, it's got Steven Seagal, it's got like Halle Berry, it's got it's got a it's got a cast of thousands, and it's just an absolute disaster. And it just goes to show you just how easily you can mess this kind of stuff up, and how hard it is to get it to get it right. 
Um, and Lethal Weapon does that, and it says something, and it tells you something, and it still does, still does that. Now they will make a more polished version of it now, definitely. Um, but it was 1987, and that's just not how movies like that were made. Um, and it's and and I think it's a it's a, it makes a significant contribution to to cinema in general, but action movies and 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 cop cops and robber movies in in particular. Graham. Well, I just just wanted to say, did did any of us catch any of the recent uh, uh, television series that that spun off of it? That was shown on Channel Five while I was working there, actually, and I think I watched the one episode of it, and okay. I thought I, it was it was all right. Okay. I I, I I I think probably you're hoping I might say it stunk, but no, but no, I don't believe no, it. I, I don't I, believe I, it stunk, but I, and it, it didn't have much charm. It didn't run for very long. I don't think. I think it hit three seasons, I think. Did it really? Bloody it hell, my God, they'll renew anything these days. Okay, so maybe there was something in it. Maybe there was something in it. You know, I mean, I'm the guy who watches NCIS endlessly. So, I mean, like, I am no judge of that day in, in these. You do not want to be asking my, really, I shouldn't be on this podcast, to be honest with you. But <laughs> You're perfect for it, Terry. You're perfect for it. Uh, well, it feels like we've... Uh... It feels like we've come to to a natural end into there before we we spin off into an NCIS podcast um, as well. <laughs> we hope that you've enjoyed this action movie landfill podcast as much as as we have. Um, you know, there is a lot. Obviously, uh, James Bond is is the bread and butter of the Odd Job Pod, but we feel that this is at least a, a, a good side dish um, and a chance for us to kind of go a little bit further into some of the action films we know and love. Um, and so, yes, the, uh, we'll do we'll do another action movie landfill at some point, won't we, gentlemen? What will oh, we definitely. do, Gary? What will we do? Oh, I mean, I, I feel, you know, there's so much in, in there from, you know, the 80s were fantastic, the 90s were fantastic. We've got so many in that I feel that we should probably do a spot of the Stathams though at some oh. point because you can't you can't talk action movie landfill without talking about the Statham the final knockings of the sell through era mm. yes and what 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 which one should we do Gary transporter what else what else what else we do but well, well, or maybe crank, but but no, the transporter, <laughs> the transporter. I, I feel that that should be our next action movie landfill. Um, and yes, the end of the end of an era. If Lethal Weapon was the start of uh, of the sell through VHS era, then uh, I think the transporter. Uh, well, I'm sure we will talk a lot about it. I was about to say, if the transporter had been made in the 80s, I'm sure it would have probably also. Uh, can you imagine? Yeah, it would have been Subway, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and and listeners, just think of all the films between Lethal Weapon and 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 Transported that we could be talking about in the years mm. ahead, years to come. Send oh. in your letters. Send yes. in your requests. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes. So anyway, uh, there is. If, if you want to get in touch with us, there is the Odd Job Pod. Um, uh, Facebook, Twitter, other things as well. You subscribe to us. If you've just come across this because you happen to be looking for a Legal Weapon podcast, uh, well, please do subscribe. We will talk other action movies. We also talk a lot of James Bond as well. Um, until that time, though, it just remains for me to say uh, thank you to Terry. Thank you to Graham. Thank you to you, uh, listener, for uh, for indulging us in an hour and a bit of, uh, of Lethal Weapon chat. And hopefully it's inspired you to uh, bring out your old VH 
NHS, put it on at Christmas time and show your the, the younger members of your family this is what a Christmas film is. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>